Well, good morning again. You know, as Austin was reading this text and, and just saying what a wonderful text it was, and, and even earlier as I was singing God's praises with you guys, I, I was just struck again by how, how amazing this word is. And all of the whole, the whole scriptures, all 66 books of the Bible from, the, from Genesis to Revelation um, are his perfect word for us, all of, all of his word for all of life. Uh, but some uh, are just particularly rich, and this is one of those. And just at the same time that I got more excited, I also got a little bit more scared. Like, I'm just so aware of the fact that this, this sermon doesn't even scratch the surface of what the, the reality that Paul is letting us into here. So I just again pray that, Lord, this could be an offering to you. Um, and that you would have your way, and that spirit you would speak through your perfect word. So, yeah, what a wonderful text! As we're, I think, three weeks into our maybe six-week study of Colossians here, this is absolutely one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, just three points this morning. Well, usually there are, but again, three points. I'm really focusing in on a little phrase that Paul uses. I believe it's in verse at the end of verse twenty. 7, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So hopefully you can remember that phrase as you go away from here, and we'll pound away at it. But Christ in you, point one, the hope, point two, and of glory, point three. So Christ in you, let's look at that first, and then the hope, and then of glory. Um, Paul speaks of a mystery here that has been kept from basically the world and even from the Jews, God's own people, for, for centuries. And that it's been finally been revealed to us in the person of Christ Jesus. And the, the phrases that he uses, the, the word combinations that he uses, including the word, especially mystery, um, really point to only one text in the Old Testament that Paul seems to be basically opening up for us and saying, look, the person of Christ opens up for us this thing that Daniel, in the book of Daniel, notably in chapter 2, um, talks about. And so let me, let me paint the scene for you. If you, if you want to and you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, that's totally fine. I'll walk you through it. But um, Daniel was an Old Testament prophet um, to Israel, actually in Babylon during the, um, Israel's exile about 500 years before, before Christ. And he served a bunch of different kings faithfully as a Jew, um, but one of the kings that he served was King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in chapter 2. We're told that he had a dream that really just rocked him. It just disturbed him. And he, so he sent out to all of his wise men, their, their employ. He had people in his employ that were just there to answer, answer riddles and to be wise and to study texts and to interpret dreams. So all the wise men in his kingdom, he was the biggest empire at the time in the, in the known world. He gathered them all, and he told them his dream, and he said, um, uh, he said, you need to interpret this dream for me. And none of them could. And actually, I believe, I just said that, he actually said, you need to tell me what the dream is, and then you need to interpret it for me. And nobody could, and so he was going to kill all the wise men. He was a pretty impulsive, pretty hasty guy. And in an ancient Near East, an ancient Near Eastern potentate, you could just do whatever you wanted to. Um, and so he basically said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put all you guys on a pole and I'm going to burn all your houses down and everybody you know, I'm going to burn you down if you can't tell me my dream. 
and its interpretation. It was this great mystery, and God reveals this mystery to Daniel, God's prophet. Um, and the, he, Daniel comes into the, and he saves all the lives of these, these wise men in Babylon through interpreting and telling the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And the dream is essentially, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, excuse me, of a big um, statue, a huge idol, really. A big statue that was various metals all the way through, a huge statue on a plane, and its head was gold, and its shoulders were silver, and then its midsection was bronze, and then down below it had feet of partly clay and partly iron, a really strong metal. And so Daniel tells him this, and then he goes on to interpret the dream. And the dream is essentially this, that this statue represents the world and all of its power, and these various kingdoms that are reigning now and that will reign all the way until the feet, which are the Roman Empire, of partly of iron, partly of clay. Very strong at first, and then later more brittle um, as the empire um, waned, really, in its unhealth. And so... Daniel says, the, basically, one of the mysterious things about that, that's not a mystery, okay, that's interesting, but the mystery really is that it focuses in on this little rock. And Daniel says, there's this rock, that you, it was part of your dream, that it's not cut out by any human hand. It's this rock that by comparison to these beautiful metals that this statue is composed of, it's not impressive. It's not cut out by human hands. In a sense, it's it's other, it's divine. And it comes and it, it, it smashes, it attacks the feet, the Roman Empire. It smashes the feet of this statue and then all of the others successfully, uh, all the other bits of the, um, of the statue just break up and bust up into pieces. So it destroys this world order and every world order and it grows from a stone, from a rock into a huge mountain and the mountain fills the earth. And it's a mystery. And then Daniel goes on in chapter 7 to speak about this again, really, and to talk about the fact that this, this stone that grows into a whole mountain, whose kingdom grows and takes over everything, is he's like a son of man, is the, is the title that, that Daniel uses. And he approaches, he actually approaches God, the Ancient of Days, and he takes his seat with the Ancient of Days, and he's given all dominion and all power and all rule. So that's the mystery. And what Paul's saying here is he's tapping into that with language that is only also found here in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7 in the Old Testament. And he says that Christ has opened up. He's revealed this mystery to us. He's pulled back the curtain. He is that rock. He is that rock that looks unimpressive by the world standard. And rather than um, asserting his own power and influence, came and led the life of a servant and actually kept the law for us, though he didn't have to, and actually died the death that we deserve that keeps us, that we owe God, took our sin that keeps us from God and became our sin for us. And, and through that death, through submitting himself to the will of the Father on that Roman cross, even unto death and being buried in the ground, endure, enduring hell for us, there was a power that went forth that was, that was an, like an atomic power when the atom is split that is just by stages, by degrees, by waves, going out into all the earth and creating this kingdom. This kingdom that's an upside-down kingdom of where power goes out largely through weakness. 
anyone is welcome to come. That's another part of the mystery here that we're going to look at, that we're going to unpack. Anyone is welcome to come. It's not just Israel. Israel is actually becomes all the nations, as was prophesied um, first to Adam and then through Abraham. He will be a blessing, what, to all nations. That Israel, this is how, is that through Christ alone, anyone can come. Any of the 90 plus or whatever nations represented here in this area, any language, any, any people of any culture can come, but there's only one way. It's through this rock. It's through this son of man, this divine figure that takes his seat with the ancient of days. And that's, I've already gotten into it, but the first point, Christ in you, there's this global aspect to Christ in us, Christ in you. The you is plural. The you is to the church, as, as Chris said earlier. Um, Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's this global aspect that really kind of going back to Daniel, I know it took it some time, it took some time, but going back to Daniel helps us to see. There's this global aspect. It's not just Christ saves me. It's not just that Christ makes us a people. It's that Christ makes us a people who are able, by his grace and his blood alone and his sacrifice and his life and his death and his reign, to see his kingdom begin to take over the entire earth. Every culture that he puts us down into, every people group, every language, will one day bow. And we see his kingdom going forward by turns, largely through suffering. Um, So that's part of the mystery, is that this son of man, this messianic figure, for centuries and centuries the Jews could not figure out, like, he's both powerful, he both shares the throne with the Ancient of Days, and he manifests his power through weakness, like, he suffers, Isaiah 53, he's like a lamb led to slaughter, his beard is plucked out, by his stripes we are healed, what is, there's this suffering Messiah and there's this power Messiah, what Christ reveals to us, both of those realities in one man, And in that way, he makes a road for us to follow him by. Do you want to see my kingdom come? Do you want to see my mountain fill the whole earth? It's going to. Do you want to be part of it? A large part of following me is through suffering. My power goes out through weakness. That's the economy of the cross. It's totally contrary to the way of the world, to asserting myself, to stepping on other people to get to the top. It's the way of Christ. It's the way of the cross. But power, and a, t- a greater than atomic power, goes out. So that's part of the mystery. But, so that's a global aspect to Christ in you, point one. There's also a personal aspect, which has been touched on in Chris's comment tacitly and, and then also by me. There's a very personal aspect to Christ in you. I mean, even that phrase sounds so very intimate and so very personal. I mean, the idea that Christ is the living God, worthy of our worship as a man. He came humbly as a man. And that he can actually live inside of us as we trust in him. As he sends us his Holy Spirit and he makes a home in us. That is so tender. It is very personal. Like I said, this you, Christ in you, it's plural in verse 27. He is making us a people. That's why we hug and go on and on. And I love the passing of the peace, as whatever we call it. But that time, uh, right before the anchor comes up, where we just catch up and I just, I see you as you are, which even if I've only met you for the first time, if you're in Christ and you've come for the first time, you are a brother or sister of mine. He's making us a people. No matter how disparately we may be connected, if we don't even really share much of a language, if you come in here not knowing a lot of English, if your culture is completely different, if you've come from Iran or from Afghanistan or from Nigeria or from South America or from China, um, male, female, child, adult. Christ makes us family. Christ 
in you. He is our, what unites us. And that is enough. Um, so he unites us, Christ in us, but also um, he makes his home, as he makes us a people, he actually takes up rev- residence in each individual person. He died for you. As an individual, he, uh, that's the doctrine of particular atonement to which I hold, which is not that Christ's sacrifice was limited, but that he died with you on his heart, if you are his indeed, if he has chosen you, if he has come for you, if he is coming for you, if he is knocking on the door of your heart. He didn't die for this faceless sort of mass of people and hope somebody would come. He came after you, and he is drawing you to himself. He is a personal savior of persons, of individuals. He has you, he had you on his heart. As the high priest in the Old Testament put the 12 tribes of Israel and their stones over his chest before he walked in to make to offer atoning sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. So Christ had us on his heart. He had your name on his heart as he went to the cross. What that means is that he died for you. So he, he takes up residence in us as we trust in him through his Holy Spirit. That's also part of the mystery. Now, I want to dig in before moving to point two briefly into more of why it's such a mystery. We've touched on some aspects. But God in you, God in me, God in us is a problem. Um, if you have trusted in Christ, he's given you his spirit, and he is alive inside of you. That, that, we take that for granted, but it's really a problem. It was before Christ came. Let me put it that way. How can, let me, let me, let me put this with a question. How can the one holy God, who is a consuming fire, Hebrews twelve twenty nine, how can he live inside of a sinful creature? like me, like you. The Bible doesn't say, just say that we, we commit sins. It says that that's our identity before Christ. We are sinners. It's who we are. It's our disposition to be opposed to God, to want to rule our lives ourselves. We run from him. We shake our fists in his face. Even if we come to church and act religious, we want to be on the throne. That's how we're born, and that's how we live until Christ gets a hold of us. So how can a holy God who is a fire live inside of a sinful creature, a sinner, without destroying that creature. He can't any more than a fire can live inside a house of hay. Um, <clears throat> when I was in Edinburgh, I remember coming across an illustration that uh, it, was, it was something that had happened just recently, I think in the States. And there was a man who had stayed in his house and in a particular chair, like a lazy boy type, chair, a recliner, for so long that his skin had actually grown into the chair. Uh, part of that was, sorry, but he got to the point where he couldn't get up anymore, and so he would just use the chair for all sorts of things, and you can imagine. He didn't even get up to do that kind of stuff. So it was a pretty disgusting and sad story because they had to eventually cut a hole in the house to try to save his life and pull him out with an apparatus, and uh, when they separated him from the chair, he died. Uh, that's the way that, that's the biblical picture of us in sin. That sin has grafted itself into us and, and, and is the power that controls us with Satan as our prince until Christ comes and rescues us. That is our depraved, our totally depraved condition. In every part of who we are, our mind, our body, our emotions, our spirit, we are uh, captive to sin. And we don't just sin, it's, it's who we are, it's what we do. Um, and so that's part of the problem. So when God comes in, the fire of God comes in to take up residence 
in us, our, sin, our constitution being sinful, the fact that it's wed itself to us and bound itself to us uh, means that we're in trouble. Again, we're, it's, like a, it's like a house of hay on fire. We will burn up. It, will, it, will, it won't just take the, if it takes the, Christ can't just take the sin away, strip the sin away from us because we are sinners. It would destroy us because of our constitution. And so what he did is in taking our place, he actually became sin. That's a, such a mysterious verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It always has been for me, and it still is, and it will remain so. But I think part of the mystery is unlocked when we see this is who we are. Sin is our constitution when we're born into Adam, our father, who represents us. And Christ, as our substitute, actually on that cross, it says he became, he who knew no sin became sin, took our place. So that we might what? What's the converse? So that we might become, there it is, not just take on, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. It, it weds itself to us, his own righteousness, not ours, his. And it be- actually becomes, as we walk out the Christian life, part of who we are. So what does this mean for us as we look to Christ and as we have Christ in us, the hope of glory? Let's look at the global aspect first. I had a friend this week challenge me and do what friends do, challenge me and say, I, I just, I need more application, which is true. And Nathaniel, my brother's always saying that, more application. So I'm, I'm going to really try to make an effort here at, e- at the end of each point. So this is the application section. What does this mean for us, all this truth? Let me, let me take a few minutes to download some of this. Let's look at the global aspect of Christ in us first. It means that although elections matter, okay, it's only appropriate that I talk about elections during, I'm not going to stump for a candidate, don't worry, don't get nervous. Although elections matter, they, thank God, are not ultimate. Okay? Christ is reigning, and he's putting all his enemies under his feet. He has destroyed the power of sin and the devil. And he's begun the process through his resurrection of making all things new. Our citizenship is not first as Americans or whatever citizen we are to whatever country, Our citizenship is first in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3.21. It's in heaven first. And we are Americans, or whatever else we are, secondly, not primarily. In fact, fact, I want to put this point squarely. We will be better citizens of whatever country we inhabit. Let's say America. We will be better Americans the more we realize that our primary allegiance is to Christ. So let me give you a few examples of that. Paying your taxes. If you realize that, first of all, especially the more money you have, the more you can squirrel away and hide away in dishonest ways, but you can find loopholes, and loopholes are fine if they're legal, but there are lots of ways of not paying your taxes illegally, especially the more money you have. If, if you're just American, if that's your first allegiance, then you're probably going to find ways to do that. You're probably going to be very tempted the more money you have, especially to be dishonest. But if, you, if your first allegiance is to Christ, and you know that he sees all things and that he's laid his life down for you and he's called you to a life of holiness. Be holy as I am holy. Not because you have to, but because he's paid the price for you. He loves you. You get to. You're new on the inside. You want to please him. You trust him. You're going to be more honest, even in the way that you pay, small example, your taxes. Okay, another example, loving your spouse. Our government never talks about how important the family is and divorce, and how that's, you know, the, the fact that divorce is so rampant, for instance, has just sort of torn the fabric of our country apart. We never hear that stuff, but that's so foundational. The, the first society is the family. It's the most foundational fabric of society, the, the husband and the wife. And, um, and that's one of the reasons the church is so good 
for the nations because we are a family committed to one another and committed to the outsider and committed to the weak and the infirm. That's good for a country. But back to this example, loving your spouse. If you're an, a citizen of America first, you can find a lot, of, especially here, no-fault no divorce in Texas, you can find easy, 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 tons of reasons to divorce or just to not be loving to your spouse. I mean, look around you. You compare yourself to somebody else, another American. It's not that, you know, I can kind of do what I want. Um, I'll meet you halfway. No. Christ says, I hate divorce, and Christ says, love your spouse as I love the church and gave myself up for her. And so there's such, such a higher call than just the call to, that America gives to citizens to be good spouses, which it really doesn't. So you'll be a better spouse if you realize that your first citizenship is, is with Christ, secured in heaven. It'll have practical effects on your Americanness or wherever else you're from. You'll, it'll make you a better citizen. And finally, another example with work. You will be a better worker if you're working for God and not for man. In the quiet places where no one's watching you, where the boss isn't keeping tabs, knowing that what you're doing, you're doing for God. That will just make you a more integritous, more honest, more excellent worker. Um, okay, now let's look at the personal aspect briefly before going on to, and point two is quite short and point three is pretty short too, so don't worry. This is the lion's share, all right? But let's look at the personal aspect. We looked at the global aspect of Christ in you. Let's look at the personal aspect briefly. And actually, this bleeds into our second point. Um, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's actually move into Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, it means that if Christ is in you, you are complete. In verse 28, Paul basically says that his life's work, he says, I toil, I strive. Why? To what end? His life's work is to work as hard as he can to make as sure as he can that every believer in his care is what? Mature in Christ. He wants to see Christ fully formed in those that God has put under his shepherding care. That word mature is the same root as the word that Christ screams, cries in victory from the cross in John 19.30 where he says, it is finished. It is complete. The work is complete. You can't add anything to it. That's the same root word that Paul uses here for. I want to toil to see every believer mature in Christ. The word can also mean perfect. Christ's work for us was finished, complete, perfect. You can't add a thing on the cross. And Paul says, this is the guaranteed inheritance and destination of every new creation in Christ. We will be finished. We will be completed. We will, we will be perfect. He will get you there. And in one mysterious, real sense, we are already there. What does Paul say in Romans 8, 28 and elsewhere? He says, you are already, there's a sense in which you are already completed. You're already glorified. This life is about letting Christ, abiding in him such by faith, such that he takes us to, to something that's already guaranteed for us, deposited in heaven. And the Holy Spirit in us is a guarantee of that finished work. He will bring us there. He will take us there. But on the same, on the other side of the coin, Paul says what? Strive therefore. I strive. You should strive to make sure that Christ is in you fully formed. Don't rest on your laurels as a Christian. If you're doing that, if you're coasting, if you're not digging in, abiding in Christ, but being more influenced by the world, you're drifting, you're drifting, and it might be a sign that you're not God's at all. So what Paul would say to us through this word is, wake up, come to Christ, 
devote yourself fully to him, believe on him, and work together as a body to make sure that we see Christ fully worked out in every part of every single member of our family. It's not just about, hey, I'm saved, cool, I can live how I want to. No, Romans 6, Paul just blows that up. And here he kind of mini blows it up. That's not the point. The point of life is that we are God's own and he's done everything necessary to save us. And anyone can come through him, any nation, any tribe, any tongue, any language. But then to see each other, to work, to toil, to pray, to love, to lay our lives down for each other and for others such that we look more and more like Jesus Christ. It's a guarantee, and that guarantee should encourage us to keep pressing in, to keep pressing on. Okay? Now, um, if, uh, it'd be remiss if I didn't look, look briefly at verse 24 with you guys, sort of under this heading of of the hope of Christ and bleeding into the final point, the glory um, to be revealed in us. But the opening verse, verse 24, it's, it's a difficult text, right? You get to it and you're like, whoa, Paul, is that heresy? He's talking about completing the sufferings of Christ in his body. Um, it almost seems heretical. Christ's body must suffer, though must complete his suffering, not for salvation. His suffering was complete for our salvation. But because he has made us one with him, because we are his body and he is our head, there is such a real, organic, spiritual connection with him that he has an appointed amount of suffering for us, his body. Because he has, as I said, paved the way to glory and to power and for his kingdom to go out, which is a way of suffering largely. That's the way that his kingdom goes forward. You know, when his church is not experiencing persecution, it usually doesn't grow, and the kingdom usually does not go forward. But where there is persecution on the church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's an old patristic thing. Um, I think it was said by Athanasius, third century. But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, He has called us as a church largely to work out his kingdom and to have his kingdom worked into us, his glory, the hope of glory worked into us by degrees, largely through suffering. Now, we will probably never suffer, at least in the next 10 years or so, who knows, in the future, in the distant future, but like a Syrian Christian is suffering right now. But I guarantee you those Syrian Christians are having God's glory worked into them in amazing ways, and we have some people that have seen that. Um, But suffering happens every day in lots of ways. We all live in this broken world. It happens through loss. You know, we, we just had a good friend lose his spouse at age 40, three, three years of, batter, of, of a battle with cancer. We saw God making her real, making her glorious, showing her more and more how real the hope that she had in Christ was, and she was hoping less and less in this world as she suffered. Suffering is God's scalpel to cut out the cancer and to create deep places in you for his glory to reside, for his spirit to reside, for his presence to work its way through yourself, through you. Um, it just tends to be God's favorite tool. It's because it's the economy of the cross. It's how his kingdom goes forward until he returns. It won't last forever. There will be an end, and that end will come for you when you breathe your last. And then he will come again, and he will make all things new. And it won't be an upside-down kingdom anymore. But for now, it is. 
It happens through loss. It happens through privation. It happens through loneliness. If we can see, for instance, if we are lonely, and we can see loneliness as a chance to, what are you doing, God? This is your tool. How can I draw me near to your heart? Help me to reach out to others who are lonely. Rather than just saying, woe is me, this stinks. And it does stink. But God is using it. It's his favorite tool, this suffering, to give us a greater hope in the hope of Christ, to form his presence in us, to mature us in Jesus Christ. Um, and it unites us as a body. It unites us as a body, not only to each other, but to him. The more we suffer, the more we see it as his tool in our lives, the closer, Paul uses this phrase, there's a sweetness of fellowship. He says in Philippians 3, I long for the sweetness of uh, the fellowship of the suffering in Christ. There's a sweetness in suffering when we realize it's God is superintending it. It is an evil, but he uses it as a good God. He uses it as a tool to make us more real. So I want you as a people to see that and not to just eschew it, not just to push it away and not just to try to resist it. Don't, be, don't go seek out suffering. That's masochism. I'm not recommending that. That's not Christianity. Suffering is an evil. It will be ended along with death, the final enemy. But it is a tool that God will use in our lives if we will let him. To make us, mystery of mysteries, to make us like Jesus, to form Christ inside of us. Christian disciplines, lastly, before moving on to the final point, Christian disciplines are suffering. They are suffering. Fasting, going without food or something that you love for a while, to draw near to God, to hear him more clearly, to seek his face, to have him work his kingdom out inside of you and through you more powerfully. Fasting, prayer, Prayer is a sort of fasting. Prayer is a service. Prayer is a drawing near to God and listening. Solitude, Christian discipline. I think of Richard Foster's celebration of discipline. It's a good place to look at. I wouldn't endorse all the esprit even of the book, but we've lost a sense of our Christian disciplines. We don't do those to measure up. We're already perfect in God, but to see Christ worked out in us, to crave him and his glory and his kingdom more, uh, to lean, to tilt more into what's coming, into Christ, um, into what he's calling us to. Giving of our resources. We have so many servants in this church who give of their time, their talents. There's that, that alliterative pastor phrase, and their treasure. But it's true, right? Your money, it's one of the resources you have, giving that. You'd ra I'd rather keep it and in, 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 uh, go on vacation with it, to be honest. Uh, I'd rather buy a car with it. I'd rather go out to eat with it. But it's a sacrifice to give but it's what we do, um, and it's a form of suffering um, out, of, because out of gladness and generosity because Christ has done so for us, but also knowing that he uses that to build his kingdom and, and to build his kingdom in us. Okay. So that's some of Christ in you, the global and the personal aspect. It's some of the hope that we have and before moving into the glory, which is just a story and then a few comments and a close, okay? Christ in us, but the hope, lastly, before moving into the hope, what? Of glory. Talking about glory for a second. One other thing I want to say about hope is that it is hopeful that Paul uses this phrase, that there's a hope of glory, of something better, of a reality that's coming. In other words, he's saying this is not as good as it gets. To, to have hope in what we don't see but we are sure of because of the revealed word of God because of the manifestation of his presence through his church, 
because of the way he's working in my life. Um, that part of the Christian life that you cannot be a Christian and not have a hope of a future that's going to be better than what we have here. Um, of the fact that I am going to shed all of this sin at some point. That Christ is fully conquered, but that I still battle with daily to give up to God, to let him crucify. It's going to be gone one day. That hope, that forward lean into what's coming, into what's not yet. We're in the already, but not fully. There's also a huge not yet. Christ is resurrected from the dead, but we're not yet. We are spiritually, but one day we're going to receive new bodies and everything is going to follow us. All of creation is going to be remade, right? That hasn't happened yet. It's a hopeful thing. The simple point is it's a hopeful thing that we have a hope. That Christ doesn't say, hey, this is it. Great life, huh? That's not what he says. It's not what Paul's saying. He's saying there's something better coming. And the more that you lean into that and don't just live for now, but live now in light of, live this day in light of that day, the, more, the better you're going to live this day. Let that day, let that hope be your North Star that keeps you making the decisions that you ought to be making pressing in together to Christ, saying no to sin, yes to him, and yes to following him, carrying our crosses. Okay, so Christ in you, the hope, what, of glory, finally. And just with a story that I want to land on and then take us home. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Glory is a strange word. It's a churchy word. So I want to, so it tends to be a stained glass word that we dress up but really don't understand, I think. Um, I want to sort of talk about what glory is by, by giving you a story from George MacDonald called The Light Princess. And just give you the bare sketch of, of the plot line and then, and then dive in to some of the things that happen. So the plot line is, is that um, the, the aunt, sorry, I, I was in Britain for four years, the aunt, um, um, or some such of this little baby princess when she's christened at a few days old comes sort of the wicked witch type thing comes in to the christening and curses the little baby with a levity with a lightness of being which doesn't sound bad but it means that she there's no seriousness in her there's no what what's the word gravitas there's no gravity to pull her down to make her able to connect in real and profound and deep painful ways with people. So she's just always up here laughing and giggling. You know anybody like that? Usually if you do, they're younger. I used to be <laughs> kind of like that. Um, kids can tend to be like that, and that's one of the wonderful things about kids, but they're not going to connect with you on a deep level, probably. They haven't lived enough. They haven't suffered enough. You know, they don't, they don't learn that. Gr- we don't learn gravitas by watching Daniel Tiger. My, my, my daughter, my two-year-old daughter loves Daniel Tiger. She, it's just her favorite thing. By licking lollipops and watching Daniel Tiger, that's not how gravitas sets in, is it? It's not how gravitas sets in. So the storyline is that there's this light princess, and it's a curse to be light. But she doesn't see it that way, and she just laughs her way through life and loves. The one thing that she really loves is swimming in this lake near her palace because um, she actually has a bit of, you know, she can't even stay on the ground, really. She's so light. She just floats around. But she, um, when she's in the water, there's a weight. There's a weight to her, and she feels, she feels at home in the water, and she loves it, and and the short of it is that there's this prince that comes along, and she's not a very lovely person. She's pretty, but she's frivolous, and she's not, and she's trivial, and she's not a very lovely person on the inside. 
there's this prince that comes along, and he's a good man, and he just loves her. And he loves, they, they take to swimming in the, in the lake together, and really she just cares about the lake and not the prince, but he loves her. And one day, um, the lake begins to drain, and it really drains almost all the way out. And at the bottom of the lake, these, these mi- young men are swimming in the lake, and they find this shiny thing at the bottom, and they pull it up, and it's a plate. It's a plate of gold, and it's written, it has writing on one side, and here's what it says. It says, death alone from death can save. Love is death, and so is brave. Love can fill the deepest grave. Love loves on beneath the wave. And they bring this up, and they say, they figure out through this plate that um, the only way to, to actually um, save the lake and to have it begin to fill up again and to have it fill up again is to um, have it destroy somebody, to have somebody go down to the bottom as opposed to levity, which is up on top, to go down, down into the profound depths of the lake and to plug it up, to pass through the hole that out, out of which all the water is seeping and to plug it up with his or her own body. And so nobody volunteers. The, the note is sounded <laughs> far and wide. Who wants to give... Because the, li- the life of the princess is kind of bound up with the lake, in a sense. She's just mourning, and she hates that it's, she can't swim anymore. And it's the only place she feels at home and real and weighty. And this prince um, gets word, and he comes as a, a shoe black, as a shoe polisher. Uh, the king doesn't know him. The king's also selfish. And, and he says, I want, to, uh, I want to plug up the hole. Put me in. He says, here's the quote. He says, the prince told the king he was a shoe black. The princess... Uh, um, the prince says, excuse me, um, later, okay, later the princess says, they told me it was a shoe black that wanted to save my life by plugging up the hole. And he says, so I am, said the prince. I blackened your little boots three times a day because they were all I could get of you. Okay, I, I, I loved to shine your shoes because it brought me near to you because I love you and I'll do anything for you. I will even shine your shoes. It was my joy. So he called himself a shoe black. So so the king didn't even know that it was a prince who was offering to, to save the life of his princess. Um, he says, because they were all I could get of you, put me in. And so they do. And the, uh, the princess is more than happy to put him in. You know, she's just glad to get her lake back, really. Again, frivolous, trivial, doesn't, doesn't know how to love because there's no gravitas in her. And he puts himself in, and he has, he has her, his only request is that she feed him uh, like stuff while he's while the water's rising and coming up to below his chin and then up to his lower lip and between his lips and then right up to his nose and that she finally he says please give me a kiss and she kisses him and it doesn't mean much to her but it means the world to him and he says all right tap me out I'm done that's fine I'm I'm dying a happy man and through his loving act he does plug they wedge him down into the hole and the lake is almost completely empty and it starts to rise again and that's how actually that's how he drowns through his love the lake rises and it and it suffocates him. And he drowns. And uh, as he drowns, the princess, through his act of service and love, actually has a, a true feeling of love for the first time in her life. And she dies. She said, what have I done? And she dies. Hey, what have I done? Oh, my sweet Wesley. You know, it reminds me of the princess bride when she pushes Wesley down the hill. As you wish. Oh, my sweet Wesley. And she, you know, jumps in. <laughs> what a great movie. But, um, <laughs> sorry, that was not in the script. Um, but she does that. And she jumps in and she gets under the water and she 
doesn't save him, but she pulls him out, unplugs him, and by that time, the lake is rising, 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 and back to itself after a number of days. But she rushes. She doesn't even care about the lake anymore. She doesn't care about anything but saving his life, and he's not breathing, and um, she brings him into the castle and, and, and just does everything she can to resuscitate him. And, you know, the fact is that he dies and he gives her life for love of her. And this, this act of, of death, of self-sacrifice, of depth, of selflessness is what makes, is what creates in her the capacity to love. And this is, this is the princess gaining gravitas. And that's really, in the Hebrew, glory means weight. It means reality. It means substance. Kavod is the Hebrew word. And, and it, a rock has lots of glory. Literally, a rock is heavy. What is it saying? It's saying that we become real and substantial. Sin has hollowed us out. As C.S. would say, it makes us tinny, light, insubstantial. Psalm 1, the wicked what? When they, they can't stand in the judgment of God. Why? Because they're just blown away like chaff. Sin has hollowed them out. They're light. They have no gravitas. But the righteous can stand. The righteous also goes through the judgment of God, but he's been made real. How? Because there's only one way to be made real and substantial and glorious, and that is to get a hold of what Christ has done for us. The fact that he laid his life down for us, paid the price on the cross that we deserve to the degree he came to save us to the degree that we get that, that that penny drops by degrees. By those degrees, we will become more filled with gravity, more glorious, substantial, more real. And that's what Paul's saying. Christ formed in you. It's not, okay, I got the gospel, now let me go, some, go do some good stuff and finish out that glory-making process. No, it's dwelling on who Christ is and what he's done. It's supping with him by faith. It's being together and see, seeing Christ fully formed in us, all based on who he is and what he's done and his spirit in us. The more we are captivated by the beauty of who he is and what he's done for us, the more real we will become, the more glorious, the more heavy. And that's what happens to the princess. Um, the princess says this. She says, is this after, don't worry. Okay, the prince comes. I want you to read the book because it's great. It's short. But the, uh, the, prin the prince comes back to life. Yeah, it's great. Um, but after he does, she says this great line. There are so many pithy lines. She says, is this the gravity? So when, when, when she starts to feel gravity, she's heavy now, and she's cared for somebody, she's, the fact that someone gave his life for her has made her care, has created space in her to love. She's, like, she's starting to feel the effects of gravity, and she can't even walk. They have to teach her how to walk. And she says, is this the gravity you used to make so much of? She said one day to the prince as he raised her from the floor. For my part, I was a great deal more comfortable without it. It's easier. It's easier in a lot of ways. A lot of ways. Not having that hope. Thinking, I'm just going to grab the gusto now. Not having that weight. Not having that glory formed inside of us. It's formed through suffering. It's formed through loss. It's formed through privation. It's formed through sacrifice. It hurts. But it's good. And it's the only way to stay grounded, and it's the only way to see him. It's the only way to be alive. The rest of us are just dead men walking. Okay? Death alone from death can save. Um, to the, the degree to which we get this is the degree to which that eternal 
breastplate of glory will be formed in us, and he will indeed finish the work. I just want to say, on this one-year anniversary, friends, brothers, and sisters, let's continue this journey together um, with Christ our King, who gave his life for us, and who took it up again, and who is reigning, and who will return. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving us your Son. Son, Jesus, King. I thank you for being that prince that gives meaning to that story, that plugged up the hole um, that we cared about so desperately without caring about you at all. While we nailed you to the cross, you were glad because of your love for us, because you are lovely. And your love makes us lovely. You were glad to, to die. You were glad to die. As it were, you die, died with a smile on your face, as the Iron Giant does when he, when he saves his friend in that cartoon, Lord. You died, you died with a smile on your heart, Lord, completing the work necessary for us to be made heavy, to be made glorious, to be made real, and to be with you. Um, Lord, I pray that you would continue that work of forming that glory inside of us. I pray that you would increase our hope day to day to day. And that um, you would help us to live more and more in this world, Lord. Very much in this world. Living out your presence in this world. Seeing culture beautified in this world. Seeing people saved and brought from death to life in this world. Caring about where you've placed us but not of this world. Lord, less and less may it be until we see you face to face. We love you, King Jesus. We thank you for giving your lives for us. Amen.